Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him, her brother. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. What the most significant day or days in your life have been up to this point? Many people, including myself, would say not only the most significant, but arguably the most joyous day or days in our life were the days in which our children were born, for those of you that have children. These days are significant days. I will never forget March the 14th, 2006, nor February the 6th. 2008, these days and these experiences will be marked in indelible ways upon my mind and soul forever. William, our oldest, was the one born in 2006, and I can remember he was born here, born at St. Mary's, and that journey together initially within your first child and that first stay in the hospital, the birth was pretty amazing. You know, experiencing the different dynamics that are going on at the time, and especially for the husband at least. And by God's grace, we didn't have any particular complications, though I know all birth is complicated. We did not have any particular complications. So for me, honestly, it was just pretty fun. Uh, It was just fun to be in the hospital. It was fun to see what was going on. It was fun to be able to hold this child in our hands. And then it was time to leave. And I honestly kind of didn't want to leave. I know a lot of people kind of can't wait to get home. But the hospital for me was just fun. It was safe and great and You know, it was just an enjoyable experience. We even had some of our closest friends that were giving birth at the same time in the same hospital with us, and so that was fun. But then it came time to go pick up the car um, to take the baby home, and, you know, I was kind of ready for that. I had literally, I had done these, like, go to the auto dealership and do the checkpoint for the car seat deal 
thing or whatever. And so I'd done that and I was ready to pull the car around as if I was going to go under like deep investigation at this point because that's kind of what they told me would happen. And of course, no one cared about the car seat when I pulled around uh, to bring the baby out. And we have all our stuff. And we get everything in the car. We put William in the car seat and we start to come over to this part of town from uh, North Knoxville at St. Mary's. And we're on the interstate and, you know, we have him in the car. And I can remember having this sense of like, is this legal? Like, we can just take a baby home? I mean, I know he's our baby, but this just doesn't feel right. Um, And I'm not sure we can really do this. Um, And that feeling went from wondering to weeping. Uh, Like Emily and I collectively together on the interstate before we got home, we're just weeping. And, And I'd like to say it was all tears of joy, Um, And there were some tears of joy, but there were a lot of tears of being overwhelmed and kind of having this sense of like, oh my God, what are we doing? What are we going to do? You see, childbirth is a really big deal. And it's a really overwhelming and joyous proposition. And among other things, you want everything to be right. You want everything to be just right. That's why you get the car seat checkpointed, and that's why these things, and that's why you talk to people, and that's why you have the nursery the way you have it, and you have the bed the way you have it, and you have the clothes and the blankets and all these things. You want them to just be perfect for your perfect child. And whether you've personally experienced that or not, you've been around others who have experienced that, and it's what I want us to do in the beginning as we consider this story to channel either our own experience of childbirth or others that we have been around that have birthed children. Because our story this morning, of course, is about the birth of a child. And I really do want us to be imaginative in a minute in a sense of placing ourselves in the story. To begin with, can you imagine being a young woman, a young Hebrew woman, who is amongst a group of people who are oppressed and enslaved in a foreign land And that enslavement and that oppression has reached, in some ways, its peak through insecurity, uh, through uh, true xenophobia, from a uh, self-centered, prideful, arrogant, uh, and unruly leader, because he's issued an edict that all young baby boys must be put to death. Women, just think about it for a moment. What it would be like to be in a land, to be pregnant, knowing that if you were to have a boy, he was going to be put to death. And then furthermore, you give birth to this baby, and it is a boy. What joy Moses' mother must have felt, what terror she must have felt when she saw that it was a boy. The text tells us that she hid him for three months. We don't know that this figure is exact and precise. What we get behind the principle of this is, presumably, the baby up till that age, they were able to keep hidden because they were able to keep quiet. The baby slept easily, presumably, at this point. But after three months, time was up. And something had to be done. Or this baby was going to be put to death. So what do you do? Once again, mothers, think about this reality. What do you do? They concoct a plan 
where they're going to take the baby and they're going to build a box. The most literal understanding, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute, about the receptacle in which they put Moses in. But a mother takes a three-month-old baby, makes some sort of box, basket, or whatever you want to call it, boat, with a lid, and places her three-month-old baby in it, and then drops him in the river. Just let that sink in for a minute. Because I really want us to understand what's going on here. Some of you that would be familiar with biblical stories would be surely familiar with the birth of Moses. And this is where our familiarity probably harms us. Because we really miss the unbelievable circumstance at which this leader who really sits at the pinnacle of God's Old Testament people, the mediator of God's Old Testament covenant, is born and then put in a box and sent down the river out of her hands. Difficult circumstances, to say the least. Challenging circumstances, to say the least. What I want us to see overarchingly this morning from Exodus chapter 2 is simply this, the hand of God is at work. God's hand is at work in the life of Moses. God's hand is at work in the life of his people. God's hand for us today is at work in our own lives. And because God's hand is at work, we can find comfort. Ultimately, from Exodus 2, what I want us to see this morning through the birth of Moses is that we can find comfort in our lives in the midst of adverse circumstances, in the midst of things feeling out of control, in the midst of things being less than ideal, in the midst, for example, of job turmoil, in the midst of relational tension, in the midst of sickness and illness and even death and loss. In the midst of financial uncertainty. In the midst of our own sin and sorrow. I want us to be able to find comfort this morning from Exodus 2. Knowing that God's hand is at work. Or more simply stated, God is at work. Do we see and do we believe that God is at work? He was He is and he will be in Moses' life and in our lives here today as well. It's very easy in our lives, just like it would be very easy for Moses' mother and father and family in the midst of all these things to ask the question, why? And by the way, God is secure and self-sufficient enough to handle not only that question, but all of our questions. And I would encourage you to ask your questions to God. To ask your questions to other Christians that you know. God can welcome our questions. And so in the midst of these adverse circumstances that they're dealing with, that we're dealing with, we can't help but to think and ask, why? We want our experience in life 
to have an explanation, don't we? We always want our experience to have an explanation. I'm sure Moses' mother wanted her experience to have an explanation too. What we want ultimately is answers. Of course, assuming that even if we had the answers, they would make us feel better. But what about this, just as a side note? What if having the answers actually made things worse? But I still would like to have the answers. But God doesn't promise to give us answers. What He does is He promises to give us assurance. In the midst of adverse circumstances, in the midst of needing comfort, in the midst of asking why, wanting an explanation, wanting answers, we're called as Christians to believe that God is at work, even if it doesn't make sense. And before we delve into this a little bit more deeply, let me just simply ask this. Adverse circumstances, suffering and sorrow, loss, illness, strife, the list could go on and on. Without question, if we're thinking at all, if we have emotions at all, surely make us question, among other things, the goodness of God. Philosophers and theologians have wrestled with this concept of theodicy for ages. A good God who's all-powerful, allowing suffering into the world. And once again, we're not promised answers, but God does promise us assurance. We're not promised an explanation with our experience. But let me simply ask you this before we go into more detail. Is it not at least worth considering that it is more comforting to know that God is actually at work, that God is actually in control, that God's providence is working through all things, even if we don't understand it. Because you see, the alternative is all these things are happening. These adverse circumstances, the suffering, the loss, the craziness, the chaos, and God's not in control. Is that more comforting? Or is it more comforting in the midst of all these things without answers and without explanation? There is a God who is in control, who is at work. I think that latter example is more encouraging. So I want us to delve a little more deeper into the work of God through Exodus chapter 2. The work of God that is oftentimes secret and ceaseless, as one commentator said. God's work is so often secret and ceaseless. Well, we see in more detail God's work in Exodus 2 as we will consider His plan, His providence, and His promise. Overarching big idea, God is at work. We can find comfort knowing that God is at work. What does God's work look like? How does God's work manifest itself in Exodus chapter 2? I want us to consider His plan, His providence, And his promise, lastly, first of all, let's consider God's plan. And as we consider God's plan for the birth of Moses, which is not, by the way, just about the birth of Moses. God's got something bigger, as he always does, going on here. God does need Moses to be birthed because God has chosen Moses, once again, to be the mediator of God's people, the mediator of the old covenant, to be the leader, to be the deliverer to take God's people out of slavery. But God's got a bigger plan than that. God's plans have been outlined really since the beginning of Genesis. 
And then definitely they started to become more manifest through the life of Abraham and through Joseph. And God is in the midst of a redemption plan. God's story and his narrative, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is unfolding. And God has particular people for particular jobs in order to carry out his plan. And Moses was one of those people. So he has a plan. But God's plan is always going to be met with opposition and tension. And specifically here, God's plan is met with opposition from the ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh at the time. His plan was to eradicate the Jews. Does that sound familiar? Even in more modern times? His plan was to eradicate the Jews. They were getting too big, too influential. They were becoming too much of a threat. He was too insecure. And so his plan of eradication was through this edict that's aforementioned to kill through infanticide every young baby boy that was born. That was Pharaoh's plan. I want us to consider a couple Proverbs that talks a lot about plans. As we think about Pharaoh's plan, as we think about God's plan, as his work is manifested. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. The heart of man plans his way, but in reality, God determines his steps. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Many are the plans of a man's heart, but it's the counsel of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. Think about that and even the imagery with water here. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns the king's heart wherever he wishes. Pharaoh didn't know that this was happening, but it was. Because you see, God's plan is working against Pharaoh's plan, and God's plan is being manifested through his own people. As Moses' own mother and sister, I would argue, strategically knew exactly what they were doing. They did not know exactly how this would be manifested. They did not know exactly how this would work out, but they were trusting in God, and they were strategic with their plan. Baby boy, hide him. After we can hide him no longer, build a box. But you know the Hebrew word for what your translation or our text this morning says basket actually is or means? Tabah is the word. It's used one other time in the Old Testament in the account of Noah in the flood in Genesis 6 through 8. And you know what the word is translated there? And what was the purpose of Noah's ark? It was deliverance. It was deliverance of God's people in the midst of a literal and figurative flood and chaos. Well, here we have again God delivering his people through his plan using a tabah, an ark. This time it would not house many animals. This time it would just house one baby. 
as he too floated in the water as a deliverer. This plan, of course, unfolds in an absolutely unanticipated and wonderful way as we see what happens. Did you follow the story? Moses' mother puts Moses in an ark and sends him down a tributary in the, in the Nile. Moses' sister keeps eye on the ark just to see what happens. And I wonder what she was thinking or feeling when she saw Pharaoh's daughter and the other women come down to bathe at the river. I don't know at that point. I'm assuming she was probably not feeling great about the plan. After all, it was this daughter's father who had decreed that all Hebrew baby boys be put to death. Yet to the surprise, seemingly of all except God, Pharaoh's daughter hears the baby crying, grabs the ark, opens the lid, sees the baby, has compassion. Think about that juxtaposed with her father who had anything but compassion for Hebrew baby boys. She calls to the others. She calls and talks to Moses' sister and they determine that this baby needs to be nursed. Well, who else to nurse the baby? What about a Hebrew woman? Oh, I know where to find a Hebrew woman. And then here in God's crazy providential plan, the Hebrew woman that Pharaoh's daughter calls upon to nurse the baby is Moses' mother. It's crazy. And then so Moses' mother raises and nurses her own child until she goes back, until he goes back to the home of Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, in order so Moses, a Hebrew, can be the prince of Egypt. God's got a plan. We can trust in his plan. I ask you to reflect upon it at the beginning of the service. If you didn't get a chance to, you can now. Charles Spurgeon, the great Reformed Baptist preacher, reflects, I'm sure when he was like 14 or something. Spurgeon, I read these quotes, and I mean, he's young when he's saying these things. But think about this as it relates to God's plan. And not only as it relates to God's plan in Moses' day, Um, but let's make a little more application in thinking about God's plan in our own life through unconventional, unanticipated, and even adverse circumstances. May we be comforted by this. And I love his detail. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. Are you picking up on the analogy? That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of sere leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. 
He that believes in a God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway between a mighty God who worketh all things by the sovereign counsel of his will and no God at all. A God that cannot do as he pleases. A God whose will is frustrated is not a God and cannot be a God. I could not believe in such a God as that. So we see God's hand at work through his plan. God tells us later through a prophet, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. Plans not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Is that not comforting? We also see not only God's plan, but we see His providence. And God's providence simply is His governing of all created things by His decree. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it like this. God, the creator of all things, does... Uphold, direct, dispose, and govern. I'll repeat that. The God, the creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy can read it on your own. It's chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And what it simply says is this. God knows what he's doing and he's not playing around. And just because we don't understand or just because we might not agree or just because we have a finite, acute perspective does not mean that God's not in control nor does it mean that God's not good. What it means is that God's at work. That God's at work through his providence. As the psalmist says in Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. No apologies. I can remember coming to receive really this beautiful doctrine of God's sovereignty, as mysterious as it is and humbling as it is and somewhat fearful, and I think that's an appropriate experience to have. This is something that I was unfamiliar with, even though I grew up in the church and the particular theological circles that I swam in, if you will, they didn't talk a lot about God's sovereignty. And then through a series of adverse circumstances precipitated really by my parents' divorce in my latter years of high school and then to my years of college, I found my theology to be thin and weak. And so I gravitated towards the sovereignty of God. And in the midst of that, It didn't answer everything, but it did provide assurance. It didn't explain everything, but it did give me hope that God was at work. And I will never forget that when I was a junior in college, listening to a sermon on tape, on a cassette tape, from a theologian and teacher named R.C. Sproul, who was very influential for me at that time in my life, was speaking about the Old Testament story of Moses and Joseph. And he said something to the effect of, this is where I love to play, what if? And it kind of reminded me, quick interjection, more contemporary though, it's from the 80s. The movie Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox, right? Classic. The overarching theme throughout Back to the Future is Marty McFly and his son need to make things right. And so he travels back in time to make sure his dad asks his mom to a dance. Because if they don't go to the dance, 
then they're not going to get together. And if they don't get together, then they're not going to get married. And if they don't get married, then they're not going to have children. And if they don't have children, then he himself won't exist. And one of the things you see throughout this film in modern day 80s, when he goes back to the 50s, is their family photograph. As time goes on and the tensions get high on whether these two, his parents, are going to connect in the 50s in order for them to have the life they now have in the 80s, and it's starting to be threatened, you see their family photograph from the 80s starting to disappear. Family members are disappearing from their photograph, and so he, Michael J. Fox, has to go back to make sure his parents go to the dance, get together, have children, and live the life they live now. What if... His dad never asked his mom to that dance. R.C. Sproul doesn't talk about Back to the Future. What if Jacob never gave Joseph the coat of many colors? If he never had that coat, presumably there would be no jealousy. If there was no jealousy, then there would be no treacherous sale of their brother into slavery. And if Joseph was not sold to Midianite traders, there would be no descent into Egypt. And no descent into Egypt meant Joseph would have never met Potiphar. And if Joseph never meets Potiphar, then Joseph's never accused by Potiphar's wife of doing something unjust. No trouble with Potiphar's wife, no imprisonment, no imprisonment, no interpretation of the dreams of Pharaoh, no interpretation of the dreams of Pharaoh, no elevation to the role of prime minister, no elevation to the role of prime minister, no reconciliation with his brothers, no reconciliation with his brothers, no migration of the Jewish people into Egypt. And so he says, this is where I love to play. What if? What if... The little baby never cried. What if someone else found the baby? What if the box was caught and a different tributary in the river and it did not float close to the bank? What if the baby was attacked by something in the river? What if Pharaoh's daughter didn't have compassion? What if she didn't ask Moses' mother to raise him? What if Moses didn't grow up as a prince in Egypt? What if there was no Moses? No Moses, no deliverance from slavery, no parting of the Red Sea, no journey in the wilderness, no Moses, no law, no law, no prophets, No prophets, no hope for a Messiah, no hope for a Messiah, no hope for the deliverance of God's people, no hope, no reconciliation, no reconciliation, no Jesus. What if the baby didn't cry? He asked. God's providence works all things for His glory, and for our good. Have you ever played what if in your life? In a good way? 
God's hand is at work. And as a result of God's hand being at work, we can find comfort because he has a plan and because of his providence. And then lastly, we can be comforted knowing that God's hand is at work because of his promise. But before we get to God's promise, we're not going to consider this. I did not read it. But verses 11 through 22, Moses grows up. And at age 40, Moses, just to super paraphrase here, has had enough. He's had enough oppression. He's had enough enslavement. He's had enough of his people being mistreated. And he watches for one last time one of his own people become mistreated and he decides to take matters in his own hands. He gets a little emotional. And he goes out and he seeks to rectify things himself and he ends up killing an Egyptian in the name of the defense of the Hebrew And as a result of this, people find out about it and Moses flees for 40 years just to delay things a little further. There's a lot that we could say about being foolish and impulsive. We can relate with that. This is what's great about the scriptures. That like we are Moses. That's why Eugene Peterson, I read this recently, the Bible is conspicuously lacking in models. What it is, is full of stories. And Moses' story is one that is unbelievable. Because Moses goes away for 40 years. And in the end of Exodus 2, we see Moses come back at 80 years old to do the task that he was born for. And in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25... This is the last thing I want us to reflect on this morning, and it's the reflection on God's promise. Verse 23 of Exodus 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You see, God's promise and the hope we have in that is really summarized here by these key words of what God was up to in verses 23 through 25. What we see that God is up to in verses 23 through 25 is God's people are groaning and crying and longing For rescue, what do we see God doing? Hearing. That alone. We serve a God who hears. What else do we see God doing? He remembers. We see God knowing. The text tells us that God sees. There's great hope in the promise that God knows. He sees. He hears. He remembers. Isn't that our ultimate heart cry? Do you know? Do you care? Surely God's people had to wonder that. Surely we wonder this as well. And verses 23 through 25 assures us of God's promise. In fact, Moses' birth assures us of God's promise to his people in some pretty amazingly symbolic ways. Moses, as a baby, 
was put into a river, a river of death. And he was resurrected or reborn out of a river of death. Moses himself, as we've already recounted, was born in the midst, extenuating circumstances. He wasn't the only one in the Old Testament. Isaac was born in adverse and extenuating circumstances. Samson, Samuel, Moses, all shared in common. Adverse, extenuating circumstances among their birth, yet all testify to God's commitment and His promise to His people. But have you realized that Moses and Isaac and Samuel and Samson and every other deliverer in the Old Testament, no matter what circumstances they were born under, are all just a shadow? Just a shadow of another baby that would be born 1,500 years later. Also born under adverse and extenuating circumstances. This baby would be born not in Egypt, but in Bethlehem. This baby would be born not in an ark after he was birthed, but this baby would be born in a manger. And this baby would not only deliver the Jews from Egypt, but this baby would deliver all of God's people forever to glory. The amazing thing about this journey through Exodus, and specifically when we consider Moses and his birth and his deliverance this morning, is that he points us to Christ. May we be comforted to know today that God is at work through his plan, through his providence, and through his promise, which is fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus himself. Pray with me.